Welcome to Tanaka Her Stories. My name is Michelle. I want to talk a little bit about what I, over my lifetime, have been looking at, uh, and I call them six principles inherent to Indigenous peoples' current self-development. And they are six things that I've come across in my life that uh, I seem to be apparent uh, in when we're talking about, you know, our self-development, when we're making decisions uh, that are going to have huge impacts, right? Potentially huge impacts, good, bad, and indifferent. And, um, and what those, what those, what those principles are. And so the first one is uh, cultural continuity, or I've heard people talk about cultural perpetuity. Uh, this, I used to say it was, you know, this idea of time immemorial to time immortal, right? Because we all, we hear often, you know, we've been here in this place since time immemorial, and we, we're always looking back. Uh, but, you know, I understand as well that we're also looking forward. And so where I see that idea of that cultural continuity is in that idea of uh, you make a good decision for seven generations. And for myself, I recognize the epigenetic factor that is in such a statement. And that statement has been removed from its deep science. It became, you know, morphed and translated and interpreted, and it became a really nice, quote unquote, a nice saying, right? A meme even. Make a good decision for seven generations. Well, the biological embedding of making decisions is actually proven in, you know, Western science, right? I remember um, working with uh, Dr. Clyde Hertzman at the Human Early Learning Partnership, and he came back to uh, a meeting and talking talking about biological embedding and talking about the work of epigenetics and how, you know, he said to me, and I remember it really well, but he said to me, you've been saying this for a long time because I, I was saying you make a good decision for seven generations. It's part of how I came to Tanaka Her Stories is I wanted to understand what happened to my ancestors that they didn't make such good decisions because at the time I was a bit of a mess. As mentioned, you know, I'm a 60 scoop kid. I was adopted at the age of three. My adoptive family were told a bunch of different lies. You know, I never knew who my mom was. Uh, you know, who knows? I, I don't think I'll ever know the truth of my own life uh, and my own life experiences. But they were told certain things. And then I came home and I found my family through Bill C-31. You know, got that letter in the mail. Congratulations, you're an Indian. It didn't really say that. It just said, you know, dear blah, 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 please contact this place, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, I got to meet my, my siblings, um, that was like 30 years ago, 30 years ago now, and, um, you know, started to find out the truth, right, and I, and I spent a year trying to, to do myself in, right, to, to be done with this life, I couldn't handle the pain anymore, um, and to be seen as the problem and to be, you know, talked to without any sort of compassion or, or empathy or understanding. Um, even the place that I worked at the time, they were like, why would you want to go back there? 
you know, you've got it so much better here. And, you know, people here were like, why would you come back here? You got it so much better there. And meanwhile, I was like, stranger in a strange land, really. Nowhere. I fit nowhere. And, uh, and so, you know, I really questioned, what does it mean? Like, where the heck were my generations? And where were my ancestors? Why weren't they making good decisions on my behalf? Right? How did I end up here? And shaking my finger out, right? Shaking my finger out. When in fact, it actually needed to be like, well, what am I going to do about it? Right? What does it mean to me? And it took me a year when I hit, hit 24 is when it really hit home that if I had continued the way that I was, the, the, the attitudes and the devaluing and the um, risk-taking that I was, I would end up repeating my, li my mom's life, right? She was murdered. She was increasingly risky behavior. She had no, her parents weren't in her life, right? She was all the way in Toronto. That's where I was born. And, uh, you know, living a hard life, having gone to residential school, having gone into the child welfare system because our grandparents took some of their children and went down south couldn't come back and so she was effectively an orphan and so thinking about you know well what were what were the seven generations before us doing why didn't they take care of us and so what I ended up doing is developing to her stories is going back along my mother's line to understand better how why who what and when when did these things start to transform for the worst? How did I end up in this situation? And so I think that's part of the cultural continuity, right? Is, is understanding better these philosophies that were actually very place-based, that were very deep and held deep knowledge for us uh, on how to be human beings, you know, where we are. And so the cultural continuity is a big part uh, that's where we are, get our identities from, right? The continuity, um, place-based attachments. So there's a there's an aspect of becoming as well as being, of living according to an ethics, right? And ethics just in Greek just means like how you want to live. Um, but also understanding the vision, right? The, how you want to be in the future. And the fact that, you know, sooner or later, we are somebody's ancestors, I am somebody's ancestors. I will be my children's children's grandma, which is a huge, huge shift for my children's children because my children weren't raised with grandparents. The second principle is intellectual sovereignty and cognitive justice. And oh my God, like what is that, right? And so it's basically the ways of being, doing, and, uh, and knowing and Dennis McPherson talks a lot about this from Lakehead University about, you know, Indian from the inside. Knowing that, you know, different cultures, different worldviews, different locations where we belong, where we're from, influences who we are, influences culture, influences language, influences reality, and 
the way that we understand that reality or that we can interpret that reality. And so it's, you know, from the from Africa, a lot of the, the thinking, a lot of the thinkers um, in, in Africa talk about intellectual sovereignty as, as self-determining agency in knowledge production. Um, and so understanding, uh, understanding, you know, the, the, the many ways of knowing, right, the knowledge systems, the very, you know, differences between different knowledge systems and valuing them all. Cognitive justice, meaning, you know, if you think about it, right, as Indigenous people, we've been in our homelands, if, if what we said about cultural continuity is true, right, that we were in our homelands, for since time immemorial means that our entire systems were designed for those places, which is why residential schools and reserves were set up to remove us from those attachments, remove us from those knowledge systems, remove us from our actual healthy neurocognitive development, whole body development. And so the cognitive justice is also the opportunity to understand and know the world the way that we do according to the diversity of knowing that. And that's a huge thing, you know, a huge consideration, I think, in, in a time of climate change, even in biodiversity and so on and so forth. When you have the science, you know, the science of universality of, you know, decontextualizing knowledge and, and just replicating it. And then you see when scientists bring models from other indigenous peoples into other people's homelands and then say well this is you know and the most you know the the latest version is the two-eyed seeing from the Mi'kmaq and I've been reading a lot about that model because it keeps showing up in Tanakha homelands as oh let's do this this is a good idea and I'm like no no that was an answer to the researchers in Mi'kmaq homelands by the Mi'kmaq people to the researchers they were trying to work with, and that was the model they came up with. That's an answer to a specific context, not a Tanakha context. We can develop our own. That's the investment. That's where people need to start thinking about, you know, what is the relationship between us? What is our knowledge system? You know, if we're going to start looking and, you know, people are keep saying, okay, we need to look at indigenous people's knowledges, then you need to stop trying to universalize them. You need to understand the importance of place. And that's another principle is the restoration, sorry, the reattachment of peoplehood to place. And I'll get to that in, in a couple more. The next principle, though, is good governance right, is this understanding. So there was this great article in, in the 90s and 2000s and, yeah, the 2000s. It was about the four R's of relationship written about reciprocity, respect, relationships, and responsibility. But there's a fifth R that's shown itself, and that's rhetoric. The rhetoric around Indigenous-led or Indigenous people's knowledge relationships, Indigenous research Right? We always have to keep the door open for non-Indigenous people who are going to do quote-unquote Indigenous research. And that drives me insane because it's around the governance of that knowledge. Since we all met, right, we have been in a, what I typify as a crappy arranged marriage where 
we keep having the same, 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 going around in a vicious circle of, you know, well, you know what an arranged marriage is. That isn't, I don't know. I've never been married, so I don't know what crappy relationships are like. But, you know, if you do, then you know what I'm talking about. And so there's rhetoric around good governance, because when we're talking about good governance, then we get people coming to tell us, oh, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. Royal Commission on Aboriginal People said third level municipal type governments, right? We have right now nonprofit societies that are trying to create themselves into governance, governments on behalf of Indigenous people, especially in BC, especially in Tanaka homelands. I am being subject to that. It's not good governance. It's poor politics. The decisions that are being made, right? Who's doing what? It's a nonprofit society that's speaking on my behalf. It doesn't work. And so we get a lot of rhetoric when we're looking at these, uh, you know, the big things with, you know, pipelines and forestry and deforestation, you know, and industrial um, industry, you know, resource extraction, et cetera, et cetera. All these big corporations, you know, all the governments have a research department, right? Research and development departments, offices, right? And they're engaging with indigenous peoples and we don't actually get the research office. So we're taking the best of what we can get. And typically, we don't hire our own people, especially if they're highly educated or if they're critical, if they're actually critical of what's going on and can give you an argument of why maybe you shouldn't do it that way. Maybe we could do it differently or, you know what, we need to stop and bring our people back into this, into this equation. You don't get hired because you're a bit of a distraction. You're a bit of disturbance. You know, I can't tell you I'm difficult. <laughs> That's the big one I often get is I'm difficult because I'm critical and I'm looking at what we're doing. Because again, go back. I have that cultural continuity to consider and I have the intellectual sovereignty and the cognitive justice to consider as well. We don't talk about those things. So the rhetoric is, are we actually... You know, what does it take to have good governance? The Royal Commission on Aboriginal People said research is, is connected, interconnected to good governance, to governance, to nation rebuilding. And yet, 30 years has passed. We're lucky if we have a research budget to start thinking or, or meeting people and you know, trying to say, okay, we need to pull back here a second. We need to do some, you know, a lit review. We need to have a research process in place. We need to see where the data is going. We're starting to get somewhere with the data governance, but it's like, well, data governance as far is like <laughs> halfway down the road already. We're still trying to figure out why are we going down this road? If you want to get to the river, why are we going down this road and not through the woods over there? That's where the question is. And the rhetoric from our, our leadership as well of being afraid, I think, being afraid to assert place-based understandings uh, and leaving it to, you know, indigenous, quote unquote. 
So the next one is that nation rebuilding and the recognition that, you know, our, our complex social systems are complicated by politics, uh, by the fact that, you know, when everybody was getting upset this summer about all the children who were, who were, whose graves we found, you know, including myself, and then I had to stop and think about the crazy making and gaslighting the survivors went through who would have as children known children were missing that children were missing that children were missing from their school from their classes from the beds next to them and we're not even talking about that how does that impact then leadership and the leadership models that we take do we trust our own people or do we look outside of ourselves for the truth and this is some it's a complex idea but when you think about residential schools and you think about yourself as a child and you're taught to trust the adults around you and all the adults around you that you trust are not your own people and then you become a leader and you've been trained over decades to listen to other people because other people know that goes into leadership and we've got those complexities now in our nation rebuilding or quote-unquote nation building so our capacity right we need the partners but mostly we need the opportunities to do it the way that's going to work for us wherever we are and whoever we are in according to our culture and our cultural frameworks that we already have in place and have been in place for us for time immemorial. The restoration of peoplehood, right? So I was born, if I, you know, when I look at the, uh, at the seven generations, you know, I look at my ancestors and they were Tanakha Aksmaknik and then they became Indians and then they became uh, natives, and then they became aboriginals, and then now we're all indigenous, right? The same as everybody else. And I can tell you right now that I am not the same as even the Sequetmik or the Okanagan who share the Columbia River with the Tanaka. They share. It's not any one of ours. But we are definitely being put into an intractable conflict and strategic regional competition for putting lines on maps, that's for sure. But that idea of restoring our peoplehood, of bringing people back home, myself included, I'm a 60s scoop kid. I came home with my two kids. Well, I had both of them while I was here, but my two children of my mother's line right? Bringing my people back together. What does it mean to be Tunaka, you know, for my, myself and for my children? The fact that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples finally puts into international law that we are in fact people, human beings. So when people are asking for this papal apology, this apology from the Vatican for the residential schools, I'm like, no, what they should be apologizing for and issuing is a papal bull retracting or addressing the fact that they determined in the 1100s and 1200s and 1300s and 1400s that it was okay 
to consider us not human. Because it wasn't just Canada. It wasn't just the British government. It is going all the way back to what are those systems that decided that we were not human. That dehumanization we're talking about. That's where that comes from. The papal bulls. So understanding the calls to action as well, right? What does that mean? It's understanding our peoplehood. And the last one that I've been putting in is the reattachment to landscapes and waterways. Because this is something that was done on purpose, right? We were put on reserves as carceral units. Those were to contain us. They were not designed to uh, perpetuate us. And when you look at our infrastructures of our reserves, the infrastructures weren't on the social infrastructure of the peoples. They were built on the external infrastructure of water, hydro, roads, right? Victorian ideas of what a neighborhood should be. And that's why you look at the houses and they all look the same. I was talking to somebody today about, you know, aging at home. And the fact that so many of those houses could be renovated for people to age in their own homes and not have to leave because nobody wants to leave home. And so when we think about the reserve system, when we think about the residential schools, during the residential schools, decisions were being made about development and we were not at the table. And then you look at child welfare, you look at the 60s scoop. When the Tanakha went forward in the, in the uh, court case around Gathmuk, right? The place where grizzly bears go, it used to be called Jumbo. They were gonna build a Jumbo, a ski resort. And people were like, why are you only talking about it now, 25 years after it's just started? And I'm like, because we weren't even we weren't even ready. We weren't even at the table. We didn't even know what happened to us. And so many of us were gone. Over the last 20 years, many of us have come home for the first time. And my hope is that people will not just reattach to the human-centric, but go back to that creation story, that emergent story that we have. Dr. Chris Horsethief calls them emergent stories that we go back to the, 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 the understanding of those stories, all living things, which means that we reattach not just to the human beings, but that we reattach to those places, to those landscapes and waterways, because that's what our relationship was with. That's who our relationship is with. The landscapes teaches us stuff. The waterways teach us things, right? There's patterns that we can interpret to understand the world. And Daniel uh, Wildcat and Vine Deloria, they've got this great quote from um, Power and Place, and it says, Power and Place produce personality. This equation simply means that the universe is alive, but it also contains within it the very important suggestion that the universe is personal and therefore must be approached in a personal manner. And if that's not the definition, quote, you know, end of quote there, but if that's not the definition of spirituality, 
then I don't know what is. And so I'm going to leave you with that in this second episode. And thank you very much for listening. Takhta an